Hello and welcome to the Business Growth Accelerator. This is Isar Metis, your host, and we have a special topic today. The most important asset of probably any business is its human capital. The employees of a business will either make or break the business. And while it's known to everybody, many companies do the very basic and it's not enough today. So most companies, they pay salaries, they give people whatever benefits they give, and they expect work in return. And that equation is less and less relevant because employees these days want and need and deserve, to be fair, a lot more. And if you want to grow a successful business and if you want to be able to scale it, that's a capability and a skill you will need to have in the company. And our guest today, Rob Buffington, has grew a remote staffing company from 25 to 400 employees in two years. He also owns and operates seven different companies at the same time, which sounds impossible to me, but it proves one thing is that he really knows how to manage people. And he's really good at driving employee engagement and accountability. And this is exactly going to be the topic of our conversation today. Like I said, because this can either make or break your business in any business, it's a very important topic. And hence, I'm really excited to have Rob as a guest of the show today. Growing a business is tough. Believe me, I know. I'm a serial entrepreneur with three startups behind me. One went public, the second busted because of bad decisions by the CEO. That was me, by the way. And the third grew to $100 million in sales as part of a larger company that got sold. It took me 20 years to learn how to do it right, but now I'm on a quest to get you there much faster. I'm hosting senior business leaders, entrepreneurs, and world-class experts. Together, we search for gold, strategies, systems, processes, and practical tips that you can implement to grow your business. You will hear fascinating business stories, really funny moments, and lots of actionable business tips. Welcome to the Business Growth Accelerator. Rob, welcome to the Business Growth Accelerator. Thank you for having me. Rob, when did you figure this out? When did it hit you that this is the holy grail, that if you want to grow and scale businesses, you better get your employees to be highly engaged and accountable for the things they need to complete? The first thing I would say, to be honest, is I'm not 100% sure that I have figured it out. I think it's a moving target. I think I'm learning every day. I'm making mistakes every day. What I do know is that I have some great people with me. I know that I couldn't do this without them. And for some reason, we have developed a good working dynamic that way. I think, honestly, I did it because I believe that it's the right way to treat people, to make them partners in the company, treat them not as employees, but as people that can help you together. And I think that had the unintended side effect of leading to better engagement and better retention and things like that, that I view us as people that are helping us get where we're going rather than assets of the company or something to be used and discarded. I love that. I think it's a great answer. And I agree with you 100%. I think if you make your employees a part of the journey, and by the way, that's true beyond that. Like If you make people a part of the journey, if you're partners, your suppliers, your clients, your prospects, a part of the journey to a better outcome for everybody, then you end up getting better results. 
Yeah. I never hire anybody that I don't think at least has the potential to stay for 10 years. If I don't think that they can grow and achieve their goals. And it's a common question. And I think most people don't really mean it, but I genuinely want to know where are you going in five or 10 years and how are we getting you there? What are we doing to contribute to that? Because the idea is that if you, number one, the companies are growing so quickly, we need people at the top and I want to promote from within where possible, but I want people that can be lifers potentially. So yeah, I never hire anybody that I think is going to use us as a stepping stone or that I feel like we could outgrow us or that we wouldn't be able to use them in a higher function down the road. I hire for the people they could be. I love that. I think we'll touch more on that, on the how of that later on, but it really starts with the basics, right? So let's start with what do you do? So you said you develop this methodology or develop a way to make people feel more accountable and feel more a part of the company. What are the things you do, the practical aspect of it that makes people feel that way? I think radical transparency is one of the things that I do. And I don't know if that's a conscious business decision as me, as much as me just not having a filter and just, I just say stuff, but I've always viewed it as people need to know what's going on. They need to know the why they need to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. So it's not just, I need to fill more positions or I need more bookkeepers. I need to, it's, here's the stepping stone. I actually just got back. 36 hours ago from our executive retreat where the leaders of the divisions came together and we talked about our three-year plan. And this is why we're taking on new projects and we've acquired companies that maybe don't make sense in the short term, but looking at the three to five-year plan is, oh, that's where it's going to come into play. So I'd say radical transparency is definitely a, one of the things we do that's effective. So let's take that to the very practical level. How is that translated to the day-to-day? What do you do with employees? First of all, obviously, like your leadership, but then down, trickling down the different levels of the companies. How do you make sure that people really know what's going on and why it's going on? Again, as I said to the first question, I'm not sure that I'm the paragon for this. I'll tell you what I do, but I'm certainly not pretending to be an expert. The first thing I'd say is time especially being a remote company, you can go weeks without having meaningful conversations with people. So I try to, we have regular meetings based on position and division. Tuesday and Friday, we have our operations call with these people. I have one-on-ones on on a bi-weekly basis with my direct reports and people that I'm grooming for a higher position. We try to have state of the company meetings on at least a quarterly basis, if not more often. So I'd say time is definitely part of it. We encourage, we have virtual socials on a monthly basis. There's something, particularly with remote work, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, remote work makes it difficult to have what I call the water cooler effect. An amazing amount of productivity and new ideas at a business comes from those impromptu conversations as you pass in the hall or you meet at the water cooler or the cafeteria. So I think virtual socials and things like that can help foster that as well as just having open and direct conversation. Any person in my company is welcome to email me and or message me and even say, hey, that's a terrible idea or I think this is stupid. I want devastatingly transparent feedback. And that gets harder the bigger you get. People don't always take you at your word, but we try to reward it and just say, 
hey, thank you for bringing this to me. Let's have a conversation and see where we go. Okay, so if I summarize this, first of all, it's having regular meetings with the right people. And I assume make sure that they're having the regular meetings with the people under them and so on to report things. And the other is really to create, almost force a more open, casual atmosphere where people, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, casually meet with each other in order to generate those conversations that get people to talk about ideas and give feedback and so on. The, the whole model, the whole psychology of a business organization has changed drastically. It used to be trickle down. The ideas come from the managers and the top and all that, and they filter their way down. Now you need both. Don't get me wrong, but I believe that the people closest to the problem can have the best perspective. You need outside perspective. You know, you need both, but you have to listen to the people that are actually out there on the front lines dealing with the problems. So for example, the retreat that I just came back from, most of what we did during those three days was simply a half an hour or an hour block. People from the different departments, even if their department wasn't specifically involved, but we would take a topic and go employee feedback. How can we get our clients to give their team members better feedback? And everybody would just give their opinion. And it was just, some was very productive. Sometimes people would get defensive. Sometimes people, it got confrontational and it was great because we had five different perspectives going at the same problem. And we walked out with a solution and everybody understood the other person's position better. Even if they didn't agree with it, at least they understood that's why they're thinking. They understood the other side better. And that was the purpose of it. So I would add to what I said before, foster conversations, right? If you can grab a topic that is important to the growth of the company and involve people from different departments, from different ranks in the business, you will probably solve the problem. And obviously you got to frame it. Otherwise it could be a conversation that doesn't go anywhere. But if you frame it correctly, you will get all the right aspects. And I love what you said, the people who are closest to the problem, I don't know if they'll always come up with the best solution. They're always going to be the people who understand the problem the best yes, and the hands exactly. can help in solving the problem. Exactly. This weekend, we had something come up that I literally didn't even know existed. And it was a five-minute conversation. But if I wasn't talking to people a couple levels down, I it would have continued for a year. And it was a five-minute fix of, oh, no, that's supposed to be over here. No problem. It's fixed going forward. But if things filter through three levels, four levels of communication, you have attenuation of signal. Yeah. I want to add something that we did in, in one of the companies I was in. We were, I was running or a part of the leadership team for a very large travel company. And we had several hundreds of employees across the entire globe. And we gave 100% of them. So every single employee had access to our full data system. And the full mm-hmm. data system had literally everything. Every transaction, every search, every sale that happened, every margin, every piece of data you can imagine broken down into, I don't know, 150 different dashboards that could give you information on different things that's going on. And some people saw that as insane. You're like, okay, you're giving Mm -hmm. your last field person that you hired yesterday access to the vault? Yes, because that will help them do their job better because they have access to all the data. And I think that goes to your point of like complete transparency gives employees the 
a understanding of what's going on in the business better and they understand nobody's trying to trick them into doing something but this is really what's going on and b it gives them better tools to deal with stuff so i i really yeah. like that point yeah and one thing people need to appreciate for all that we talk about millennials and general generation z i don't know if i would say that they're smarter they're absolutely better educated and they grew up in an age where the sum total of human knowledge is available in their remember, you remember you're not always going to have a calculator on your pocket really <laughs> yes we will so this generation grew up with a drastically different perspective on how to process and how to find new information they grew up not remembering they grew up researching and so they you different some better some worse but that's why you involve them in the conversation yeah i'll say something else i'll add to that i love your point i think it's there's a guy called christopher lockett he's the one of the authors of play bigger and consider the grandfather or the godfather if you want of category design and he talks recently a lot about maybe the biggest shift in creation and destroying valuation in the next few years will be from the generation leap from native analogs to native digitals and he's saying the world is now a digital world but uh -huh. people like me dinosaurs who still I'm a huge techie I'm a huge fan of tech I play with tech toys all the time I try new tools all the time I'm still a native analog to yeah, we me, were born I live to it. in an analog world that enjoys tech extensions who people for people who are born with cell phones and internet in their hands there is no analog and digital world there's a world mm -hmm. it has both these aspects equally as important and to some of them the digital side is even more important than what i would call the real world and they would call the physical world but it's mm -hmm. part of the world and they know how to operate in that world in a much better way than i ever will and i'm way on that far end of the scale of a digital analog that is very techy and digital sorry yeah like a native analog that is very digital i'm not the norm the norm is very far from that and so involving these people in any decision making in the process is a huge benefit let's yeah, it's like being a native speaker as opposed to studying yeah. a language for 20 years yeah you'll never be as comfortable maybe you can communicate as well but it's not the same Yeah yeah yeah. I want to take it again to the very practical level. So mm. when you start you said we talked a little bit about hiring, we talked a little about people in different positions. How do you help people understand exactly and I'm talking now about the accountability side. Mm. What's their role? What they need to do? What they need to achieve so you can even then have those conversations on okay, mm -hmm. what's the problem? What's going on? Yeah. I think your best friend in that topic is going to be metrics. Okay. Objective data points that can be assigned a numerical value that can be tracked over time for positive and negative changes. Too many people I'm very heavy obviously I'm in staffing the staffing largely is focused on real estate property management things like that and I like to say that the main metric most companies have in the property management space is how many people yelled at us today. <laughs> That's the only thing that they're tracking most of the time because they get yelled at a lot. And what metrics give you is I like to say metrics don't tell you what the problem is. They do not. But they tell you where to look. 
so the story I like to give is when I first implemented metrics, probably 10 years ago at my company, one of the, we started with just a handful and we'll go into that later, but one of them was missed call percentage. And we had people say, oh, nobody ever called me back, blah, blah, blah. And we brushed it off because we had two people. We knew that was enough. And we just brushed it off because people exaggerate. They like to raise a fuss. And these weren't the most stable of people. But long story short, we started tracking missed call percentage. And it was 32%. Wow. And I said, that's impossible. We have two people answering phones. We're a small company. Like something is wrong. Long story short, come to find out that a previous person who had left, somehow her extension was still in the round robin. And so a third of the calls went into this black hole. Yeah. Without key objective data, I could, I would, it would have been years of missing a third of the calls. It took five minutes. It just, as soon as I found out what the problem was, oh, just reroute this. But without that data, the next week it was like 8% and then very quickly dropped to under 5% and stayed there permanently. But without that data, I never would have known to look. Now, did it tell me, hey, you forgot to do this? No, but it took the whole world of problems down to this little area. And it just took a very quick deep dive to find out what the problem was and solve it permanently. I like that. I'll give an example from my side as well that, again, helps you see situations. And in this case, it wasn't even a problem. I found out there was a problem through looking at a very positive situation, but mm-hmm. I was running a sales call center. And in the sales call center, the best employee was, he was really an awesome salesperson and he sold more. We were selling travel solutions and he sold more travel vacations than anybody else on the floor with a big spread. Like he wasn't even close. Like he was number one and then people were competing for number two. And obviously that comes with better shifts and it comes with better pay and it comes with bonuses and it comes with different perks because he was the best salesperson. But then we started tracking other stuff other than just how much you sold and so on. And one of the things we started tracking is conversion, like how Mm -hmm. many calls you actually convert. And he was one of the worst converting agents. And I'm like, okay, how can that be? So then we started tracking how many calls people take. Mm -hmm. If the average person would take I may be making the numbers up, but I think they're roughly correct. 250 calls a week, he would take 750 calls a week. Okay, yep. Because what he did is, okay, I don't think I can sell this one. I don't think I can help you, sir. Boom, hang up the phone. We don't sell this thing. Thank you, lady. Boom. Every time he thought that it's going to be either a tough sell or he's not going to make enough money, he threw it out. Now, the other agent, so he was converting at like 20%. The average agent was converting at 35 to 40%. Meaning he threw away half of the company's potential revenue to make more money for himself. Now, this was my doing because I incentivized Mm -hmm. selling more stuff in a way. So my incentives created the situation. But without tracking additional things, there is no way I would have identified that my best salesperson is actually damaging the revenue of the company. Yeah, you have to balance the metrics because they can, and statistics can be skewed if you cherry pick them in any field. And so, for example, perfect example on the customer service side, you can have average call time is a very common metric. Yeah. You want that number as low as possible. But unless you're balancing it with customer satisfaction and first call resolution, 
We've all had the call center that we called in and we just need this fixed and they get us off the phone. And so you have to call again and again. So maybe it's a five minute call instead of a 10 minute call, but there are five more calls, meaning 30 minutes or 20, yeah, 30 minutes total and a really pissed off customer as opposed to 10 minutes on the first call. So you have to balance your metrics or you'll have people jumping through hoops to meet the metrics to the detriment of the company. So let me ask you a question. I think this is a great conversation. I think it's extremely valuable for anybody who's managing people want to track them. How do you define, how do you pick the right KPIs to track per, not per person, but per role? Like, how do you know what are the most important things you need to track? Because you and I just gave a few examples. Oh, I can track a few things, but then if I don't balance them with some other things, I'm going to lead to the wrong outcome. Yeah. It's always a moving target. The list should be getting longer and longer as you go. You should have, it's kind of like a general ledger versus a P&L. You can look at the general ledger and see every transaction ever, but it's basically worth, it's worthless unless you need to do a deep dive and find out something. Most of the time you're looking at the P&L. So I always tell people start with five, just start with five because it's working a new muscle group. And if you tell yourself you're going to track 50, it's like a new year's resolution. You're not going to do it. So pick the five most important ones. And you have to identify what's important to your company. So let's stick in my wheelhouse, property management. So it could be average email response time, missed call percentage, percent delinquency, because cash flow is important, sales conversion, and number of open work orders, let's say. If it was for a customer service department, you would say, missed call percentage. I'm big on responsiveness. Missed call percentage, first call resolution, net promoter score, customer satisfaction score, and upselling, sales conversion, fill in the blank. So it really depends on number one, what is important to your company and where are your pain points? So for example, if you're struggling with something, that's where you want to start because it'll tell you where to look. So it'll come down to the position and always pepper it with some common sense numbers. Again, they don't take the professional thought, but they help you hone it. Awesome. I like this. I think the, you know what, let's take one more example because I think that's going to make it interesting. What do you track your leadership team on? Because what you just said is more Mm -hmm. on the lower level employees that do the day-to-day stuff. What are the KPIs that are more strategic, I would say, that you track your leadership team on a regular basis? The trick with the leadership team is you have to align them with the company's values or you're going to have the same thing. For example, I rarely give division-based bonuses. I give corporate, I give profit share. How did the company as a whole do? Because for example, a salesperson can land everything under the sun But if they've lowered the prices and they're poor quality customers that take a lot of time, then that doesn't help the company. So the beauty of it is you can align the interests. So for example, our sales commission structure is usually based on profitability rather than gross revenue or volume. I take a look at, so let's take recruiting, for example. I will take a look at the KPI of the people under them and see how we can do that. So what is the purpose of a leader? It's to make the people under them 
equip them with better tools, encourage them to go above and beyond, make that operation run better. Better employee retention, better employee engagement, all of that. So for a recruiting supervisor, for example, it would be the same things that a recruiter has, number of positions filled, average fill time. Over on the HR side, you might have retention, engagement, et cetera. And then you could look at metrics for their sub-employees of how long have they been with the company, number of times called off, employee attendance, things like that. And then you can also add in some financial metrics, profitability. So for example, retention is both HR and recruiting based because recruiters can be just like the salespeople we talked about. Just because they push somebody past the interview doesn't mean they're going to work for a year. So if a recruiter and particularly a recruiting supervisor is attracted and incentivized for the long-term benefit, they're more likely to be cautious with the candidates, which is, and which is the way it should be. So you want some of it to be the positions under them as a whole, and some of it to be corporate as a whole, because they're responsible for their part in everything. It helps align the interest of the division to the whole. Great answer. I think having a good balance of in, in the leadership tracking between strategy, so company strategy, and you're in charge of the results of the people under you, both the people and the right. results, so both aspects of it, that's what you're in charge of, and putting it all together. I think something that we're both saying several times, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that because you, we both touched on it, is the incentive side of things. At the end of the day, people will do better job because of two things. One, and you touched on that as well, if they believe in what you do, if they believe that this is the right thing to do, that you're helping somebody somehow with the company's goals, with the company's core values, with the company's mission statement, that's one thing that helps. And the other thing is what are they particularly incentivized to do? Because at the end of the day, yes, people come to work to be fulfilled, but they also come to work to pay the bills and have enough money to go on vacation when they want to. And so- it's always a mix of these two things. How do you put the right incentive packages in place? What do you incentivize and how do you incentivize people? I think it's a very important question. And I think you have a good way to solve it because of a lot of things you already mentioned. So the first part of what you talked about is the believing. And I'll, I just want to take a minute on that. Again, we've talked about the different generations and what they want and what's important to them. And it's real easy to make fun of millennials. I've done it plenty of myself. Millennials and Generation Z, and it's a new way to do things like we talked about, analog, digital. Here's something that's rarely talked about. When a millennial believes in your company, truly believes, not as happy, not hasn't left yet, but when they believe in what you're doing, they will become your biggest brand ambassadors. They will bleed for your company. They will talk about it to their friends. We have the most potential in this generation because, again, they have the best tools to deal with this new world that we're coming into. So if they truly believe beyond just this is a well-paying job, but if they believe in the values, and the direction and what you're doing, they will be your passionate representatives. That's, that's part one. And I think that mean, that can mean just as much as the incentive because some people are mercenary and hey, that's fine. We've got some people that they just, I want the money, give me the money. Okay, let's do it. The majority of people, 
and those people can always be offered something better. They can always be offered 10% more and they'll jump. The people that truly believe those are your lifers. And like I said, I like lifers. I want people that people move. I get it. I'm not thinking that most of these people won't take another job, but I like to think that they could be. So incentivizing needs to be both value-based and pardon the pun, but value-based. The advantage of these metrics is that they can help you develop a formula for how to incentivize people. And the more that you can be transparent about why it works this way, the better. So let's stick with the recruiting example, because we just recently went over the bonus structure for it. Obviously, they want the number of positions filled is going to be important. But like we just talked about, there also needs to be a component that relates to how long do those people stay? Because a recruiter can, again, they can force people through an interview. They can coach them on what to say. They can get them hired. But if there's also an incentive to make them stay for a couple of years, that, that aligns their interests with the companies. So you have to have different versions. And the best thing to do is be transparent with the data and let them know this is why you're getting it. It's 20% this, it's 10% this, et cetera. Because this generation grew up with what we call gamified rewards. Everything they do, whether it's Farmville, I honestly don't know what they're playing today. <laughs> I'm a bad example, but Farmville or whatever it is, they're all gamified. Robinhood, perfect example, has grown tremendously because they've gamified stock trading, which personally I think is a dumb idea. Yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> a dumb idea for anybody not- that's want to trade the old way. That's the only reason to that might be. Yeah. If you're doing it because you get the little notifications, like that is not why you trade stocks, but that's a rabbit hole. But perfect example, they grew because they harnessed this new generation and they gamified the process. You get a free stock and you get, you get this many points and all this stuff because it increases their revenue, but they did it successfully. And whether it's a good thing or not, they succeeded. And so you need to do the same thing. You need to have, you can have competitions. I'm not the world's biggest fan of competitions. I like to have it against your previous rec and incentivizing and you today versus you a year ago, but you can have competitions. You can have referral contests. You can have, you, you can be creative. But the more that you let people see the rewards and understand how they can determine it and know ahead of time, the better. People like to not be surprised. They like to know what's coming. Yeah. I want to go back to the example I gave before with the call center and the salespeople. We change the plan all the time. And I love the fact you said it's always a moving target, right? We changed the incentive plan several times every year because we started to understand that, okay, we can gain more here. We can be better at that. And we found out that the best way to do this is to change the incentive structure. And we made it so that people, like you said, we got everybody together and we had different calls and we did these simulations. So in the new plan, if you do, this is what you're going to get versus if you do what you did so far, this is what you're going to get. So explaining to people how the plan works. The other thing that I found that works very well in the incentive side, it's not always money. Different people want different things. And sometimes it's the prestige. 
Sometimes it's access to things they don't have access to. So extra PTO, another work PTO, from home okay. days. One of the favorites, which I always found funny, but I gladly did it, was dinner with me. So once a quarter, we did dinner with the head of the division. And there was only, I think, eight seats. And there were, I don't know, 50 people in the call center. So everybody wanted to be one of those eight people that goes to dinner. And I'm like, okay, it's one dinner in a quarter. Yeah. It's not a big deal. But people really wanted that. And people could pick different bonuses that, you could, that they could play for if you want. And it worked very well because then you give people something they want and you allow them to be more flexible with what they're getting for basically doing what's best for the company because that's the whole point of incentives. Yeah. Incentives should be win. The better you do, the better the company does, the better you do. It should not yeah. be punitive, do this or else this. Yeah. I got to yeah. ask you a very practical question because we're giving a lot of examples of what to track and what's the result and how to incentivize. How do you actually track these things? Do you have this fancy software? What? How do you put together this whole thing in a way that like, oh, here's what Joe and here's what Jenna did this past week aligned with what we said yeah. they will do last month? Great question. You may not like my answer, but here it is. I use Excel. Okay. Um, I've got one of my VPs is has, we've rolled out HubSpot and it seems really powerful. And I think eventually it will generate a lot of these. But the honest, no BS answer is for the last five years, most metrics have just been, we go in, we pull the report and somebody types it into a spreadsheet and every week we compare it and it works. I'm a big believer that if you start simple and build up, it's perfectly fine. What happens is people will invest three months into a one-stop solution that's going to give you a hundred metrics at, a, at your fingertips. And by the time it gets rolled out, they're on to the next project. It's better to pick, like I said, start with five things. Get an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet or something in SharePoint that you share with your key people and just have somebody log in and record it. Because once you do that, you'll start to see the value. And again, it's gamification. You have a dashboard, you can see what your company is doing. And you can make it pretty. You can use charts and graphs and all that. And you should. I have an advisory board that I meet with quarterly and I have I'm, I make the data look a little bit better. But at the end of the day, most of what I'm playing with is in Excel. Because you know what? In Excel, there are so many functions I can use. Give me the average of this time frame. Help me see the pro pro progression of this. It's so much easier because it's close to raw data, but it's not unworkable. It's a profit and loss, not a GL for that analogy. So that personally, that's what I like. I will say a lot of the, a lot of the software we use gives us the metrics. So for example, average email response time, I don't need to go to every email and look at when it came in and when it went out, but we take that data and then we put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. And I'll add one more thing. It sounds like a lot of work, but today with all the automation tools out there, yeah. you can do 90 something percent of it without anybody has to actually log in data. It will go and yeah. pick up the data from the different sources and plug it into, like you said, Excel or Google Sheets or whatever other database user-friendly tool you want to use. And you can start tomorrow. And I think that's the biggest benefit because people can analyze the software or they don't afford the software or they don't have the time to implement the software. Everybody knows Google Sheets or Excel, and you can gain mm -hmm. huge benefits from using just that out of the box. 
And like I said, start simple. Start with a few parameters yeah. for every single person. Have it as automated as possible with tools like Zapier and stuff like it. And you mm -hmm. can get a very good working solution with almost no investment. Yeah. And it's, we don't have four people full-time doing research. This is one person in each department who takes half an hour a week to update the metric sheet. It is very straightforward. And as you said, if you want to get fancy, you can use Zapier and WebMerge and all that. Some things you can have them email you automatically. Like I get a phone log sent weekly with the data so that I don't have to go in and do it. It just simplifies. So there are levels of progression, but I would say it's more important that you get the data than how you get it. Makes sense. I want to take it to the next step. So now you have, we've identified the key metrics per employee and we've identified the how to track it and where to track it. What do you do with the data and how frequently? So how frequently do you look at your employees' data? How frequently do your leaders look at their employees' data? And what do they do? What kind of feedback mechanism is built into this whole thing to make it work? So it's going to depend on the metric. Missed call percentage is going to be weekly. I have a building services company. We have gross revenue divided by number of payroll hours. That's going to be weekly. Other numbers like gross margin, that is going to be monthly. Something Most things should be weekly or monthly, but then some reports are only analyzed on a quarterly basis. But what we do is we track it on a weekly and quarterly basis, and then we aggregate the data. In terms of feedback, it goes back to gamification. As weird as it is, people really want the data. And they don't want it. Annual reviews, I've said for a long time, annual reviews are dead. If you're not doing quarterly or more often, your people are going to feel disconnected and they're going to drift. So giving them access, and again, you have to decide what information and how they get it and all that. But letting them at any point check in and see, oh, this was my progress for last week. Interesting, because are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? No. Dunning basically the people that are most confident are usually the least experienced or at least not intelligent, but have the least reason to feel confident. Basically yeah. the more experienced you get, the less confident you get at stuff. And I've, I'm probably butchering the numbers, but I want to say something like at a survey they did when they were researching this, it was 50% of people at a company surveyed identified themselves in the top 5% of employees. Yeah. And so the problem is most people, not inflated self-worth, but they're not always realistic about their progress. And so bringing it down to objective data helps them identify what to look for. The same way that company leaders need to know where to focus to improve things, employees need to have something to track it with. And again, it should be against where they were yesterday. It shouldn't, depending on the situation, but you shouldn't try to embarrass them or, oh, Neil is better than you. That, that's not what it's for. But if they can see on a weekly basis that, hey, my missed call percentage is going down or my response time is skyrocketing, then they have that objective data that even though they feel like they gave it their best, the results don't show that. And they should feel free to say, hey, I think this data is wrong. It doesn't take into account that I spent eight hours with our biggest client trying to salvage the account or whatever. 
it never replaces common sense, but it gives them raw data in a gamified way that, hey, I'm doing better, I'm doing worse. They know exactly how they're doing. And on some level, they want that. It makes them feel more secure and that there's a structure in place. They're not just at people's whims. So you're saying on the individual employee level, at the task level, if you want, there is regular Mm -hmm. feedback because they have access to reports and data that they see all the time. And on aggregated data, depending on the data, there's either weekly meetings or monthly meetings or quarterly meetings to go and review the different information. So on our quarterly reviews, we include KPI by position. So my building services company, my operations manager, it would be the aggregate of the data for the company. It would be what is our gross revenue divided by our payroll hours? How much percentage of overtime did we have? What was the average rollout time? What was the attendance rate? What was the gross margin on the job? Those kind of things. But then there's also weekly reports that specific people have access to different facets of that they can log in at any time and say, last week sucked. What, what's up? And they can look at it and go, oh, yeah, got it. But it can also help people identify much quicker, like problem clients, for example. I guarantee you, anybody listening to this, you have one client that you're spending way too much time on that is not worth the revenue or the margin. And you don't know it because you're not digging deep into the data. So yeah, the more data you have, the more informed choices you can make. Yes. I really like that. I'll say one more thing again from my experience of this. One of the things that we did based on all the reports that we had, and just like you, we were tracking more or less everything that we could, was making it actionable. Meaning it's one thing to look at a report and to figure it out. It's another thing to already take the report and turn the report into something that is actionable. I'll give you a great example. We were, let's say, it doesn't matter which business you are, you have 10 different suppliers for the same thing. And you want to always buy from the best one at the right time, at the right rate. And how do you do that? How do you know which suppliers sell to you at better rates at any given point? Or how do you know that this supplier is sending to you at $200 and to somebody else at 180 And that means if you're bigger than them, you should buy it for 170 And we had a system that did all of that for the employees. So they didn't have to go and dig in and try to figure out the numbers themselves. So the next level in the evolution of having data is to take the data that's in the system and make it actionable, like actually defined. So when an employee logs into his system in the morning, he has three things he needs to do based on data that the system provided to him, based on results of what happened yesterday or the week before. And today with the availability of AI analysis capabilities, it became almost a crime not to do this because you can overlay some kind of a AI tool on top of the data you already have and query that and get action items as a response. I'm sure there's already, and I don't know a specific one, but I'm sure there's already tools that do it for almost any database out there just because it became so readily available in the last few months. And so look for these things, look for a way to take the data and make it actionable. The other thing that I want to touch on that is related to this is to not just make the data available to employees, but educate them. So in many Mm -hmm. cases, when you do a, especially when you do like a company-wide, and I don't know how frequently you do that, but when you do like a state of the company kind of talk, some people are not at the level they understand a P&L because they've never seen a P&L before. And so 
doing some kind of an educational process. And that was just one example. That's something that I used to do. So every quarter, I would share the PL with the whole company and I would actually go and explain it as if it's and some people say, okay, I know what a PNL is. But for a lot of people, that was awesome. People would come to me after that. Oh, great. This was the best explanation I've ever, I ever got to where is the company right now financially. So I think these two things of taking the data is making it more practical for more people is another great way to take this, to take this concept forward. Yeah. Yeah. My college professor would say you have to put a handle on it. You've got the tool, put a handle on it. Rob. Last question before I let you go, because I know you had a really crazy week. How do you know, as the leader of all of this, that all these things that you're doing are actually leading to the business goals? How do you connect the dots, you, from your seat? Because that's why we do all of this, right? We do all of this so the company as a whole do better. How do you know what stuff is like, oh my God, why the hell are we tracking this thing? It's just a waste of time versus what's going to lead us to, I'll go back to what you said, be a better company in three to five years. There's no such thing as bad data, in my opinion. There's inaccurate data, but there's the more you can track, the more efficient you are, because it may not even be something you need now, but a year from now, you may need to audit and go back and it tells a story. It can even tell you when employees are having personal issues because we've had employees that like, man, they're stellar. And then just boom. So let's check. Hey, how are you doing? You need like, how's things going? What's up? Not trying to penalize them. Not trying to just do they need help? Are they okay? Is there something going on in their lives we should be aware of? So that's part of it. Those, the important numbers will change over time. There are a lot of reports that I used to pay a lot of attention to that now they've become so rote that I only look, I actually tell people highlight if it's outside of this range, otherwise I'm not even going to look at it because I trust the people under me that they're just, they've done this long enough. If something is above this number or below this number, that's a red flag. Let's dive in. But otherwise it's good. If anything, it can tell you where you don't have to look. Yeah. So it can save you time by having too much data. And that's the thing. If you have an, if you start tracking, it's going to be useless. It's going to take a month to figure out, except like in my instance, the 32% missed call percentage. But if you start tracking for a year and somebody new comes in and it's their first week and they say, oh, first call resolution of 83%, is that good or bad? Okay, here's a year's worth of data yeah. on first call resolution, average res- and data that you've never used before can save time in the future. So in my opinion, there is, there's very little useless data. Awesome. And well, as you said, with AI and automation, it's becoming easier and easier to get that data. Agreed. Rob, this was really great. I think we touched on a lot of really important points. If people want to follow you, connect with you, work with you, what's the best way to do that? You can find our website at slicingthegordianknot.com, or you can follow me on LinkedIn, Rob Buffington. I'm available on there as well, Gordian Business Solutions. Rob, thank you so much. This was really great. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Your business growth is my number one priority in this podcast. To do that, I want to bring the biggest names that I can and get you practical tips as frequently as possible. And you can help. 
visit Apple Podcasts right now, subscribe, download, rate, and review the podcast, and I would really appreciate it. And if you want my number one tip for business growth acceleration, visit growthaccelerator.biz right now.